What do you get the medieval king who already has everything? The answer may surprise you. It's all about medieval gift elephants today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Zoological gardens, or zoos, as we conceive of them, are either a very ancient thing or a modern invention, depending on how you look at it. The zoo, as a public place where people come and view animals, was relatively rare before the 19th century, and the idea of keeping these animals for conservation purposes to prevent them from going extinct is even more recent. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature List of Threatened Species, which is the modern standard for determining if an animal is endangered or not, was only created in 1963. However, the practice of keeping or collecting animals, usually, though not always, exotic ones, simply for the purpose of having such a collection as a prestige or status symbol, is a very, very old idea. We usually call these collections menageries, which comes from the old French word ménage, meaning members of the household. Uh, you've likely heard it used in the expression ménage à toi. This practice of collecting animals for private, usually aristocratic, enjoyment and entertainment rather than for domestication or agricultural use dates to at least 2000 BC. In the 15th century BC, the Egyptian queen Hatshepsut kept a menagerie of animals, including monkeys, giraffes, and leopards. Likewise, the Hebrew king Solomon is recorded in the biblical books of Kings and Chronicles as having kept lions, apes, and peacocks, as well as camels and horses. The first instance of a menagerie being open to the public and charging an entrance fee dates to ancient Greece in the 5th century BC in what was primarily a bird menagerie or aviary. Menageries were also kept in ancient Assyria, Babylon, and in China. The Roman emperors were among the greatest menagerie keepers in history, with their collections comprising hundreds of animals, including lions, bears, crocodiles, camels, rhinoceroses, and the subject of today's podcast, elephants. So let's talk about elephants for a second. Generally speaking, there are two varieties or species of elephant. African, which can be found roaming the vast plains and forests south of the Sahara Desert, and Asian, where they can be found ranging from India to Indonesia and everywhere in between. There are quite a few physiological differences between the two species. Uh, for instance, African elephants tend to be much larger than Asian elephants, but the easiest way to tell them apart is their ears. African elephants tend to have really big ears, while Asian elephants have much smaller ears. All elephants are herbivores that can consume up to 300 pounds or 150 kilos of food per day, and they are the largest land animal in the world, weighing anywhere from 6,000 to 15,000 pounds. That's uh, 3 to 7,000 kilograms. Because they are so big and consume so much food, elephants are enormously expensive animals to house and feed, which is why until the advent of modern zoos, elephants tended to be found only in royal menageries, as even wealthy aristocrats could have trouble affording them. In terms of their history in the West, elephants are frequently mentioned in the sources of ancient Rome. As I said, the Roman emperors liked to keep menageries. Julius Caesar even talks about them in his History of the Gallic Wars, where he perpetuates a prevalent myth about the elephant, namely that it doesn't have any knees and therefore can't bend its legs. Consequently, when the elephant falls over, it's like an upside-down turtle, and it can't get back on its feet without help. 
Over the next 1,500 years, when the elephant is described in the West, particularly by people who have never seen an elephant, this bizarre trait is almost always emphasized. As I said, elephants figured prominently into the menageries of several Roman emperors, but after the collapse, disillusion, fading, assimilation, or renaming of the Roman Empire, uh, that's a historical debate I'm not even going to come close to touching in this podcast, elephants only make a few appearances in Europe for the next thousand years. Because they are not native to Europe, there grows up a kind of mythology around the animal, and because people couldn't observe them, these myths and stories tend to get perpetuated and embellished. In addition to Caesar's bit about elephants having no knees, the first century historian Pliny the Elder, for instance, believed that elephants lived to be several hundred years old. Pliny also records a fact about the elephant, a fact in air quotes, that gets repeated a lot throughout the Middle Ages, namely that the elephant's main rivals in nature are giant serpents, and in the wild, elephants and snakes engage in sort of these epic struggles to the death, um, with the snake attempting to, uh, like a boa constrictor or a python, strangle the elephant, and the elephant, whenever it dies, falling over and killing the snake. In the unintentionally hilarious book Etymologies by the 7th century author Isidore of Seville, the serpent is transformed into a dragon, which tries to devour baby elephants as soon as they are born. The other main attribute of elephants that appears in both ancient and medieval sources is that they are used as instruments of war. There is, of course, the story of Hannibal crossing the Alps in 218 BC with an army that included war elephants, and the Emperor Claudius brought along an elephant during the invasion of Britain in 43 AD. Roman and medieval sources also note that in Persia and India, large structures were built on the backs of elephants for use in war. These structures, called howdahs in Hindi, were hyperbolized into castles, so frequently so that in the Middle Ages, elephants were usually drawn with castles on their backs. This image was eventually used by a pub in the south of London, which in turn led its name to a stop on the tube, Elephant and Castle. For most of the Middle Ages, though, knowledge of elephants was largely transmitted through a special kind of manuscript, known as a bestiary. As the name suggests, a bestiary is a book about animals, both real and fictitious. Bestiaries describe not just the physical attributes of an animal, but its behavior as well, usually with some kind of moral or spiritual lesson to be learned from the animal. The phoenix, for example, uh, by dying in flame and rising again from its own ashes, symbolizes the resurrection of Christ. Elephants also take on a Christological symbolism in the bestiaries because, as we saw in Pliny, the natural enemy of the elephant is the serpent or dragon, an obvious, well, obvious if you're a medieval Christian, analog to the Serpent of Eden, and therefore the eternal struggle between the elephant and the serpent is nature mirroring the struggle between Christ and Satan. As large, exotic, and rarely seen creatures, elephants were at the apex of what you might call political gift exchange. Although I normally hate it when my students use the phrase throughout history, in this case it actually does apply, because throughout recorded human history, The formation and maintenance of political relationships have frequently been accompanied by some form of ritualized gift exchange. These gifts are not always, in fact I would say almost never, practical, useful items, but are instead meant to display some aspect of the giver's culture, wealth, and power. This is still a tradition very much observed today. Uh, If you've never read the official gift register for the White House Office of Protocol, you really ought to do it. Uh, I'll post a link on our website, footnotinghistory.com. They maintain a register of every gift given to a member of the executive branch of government by foreign governments. 
The register gives a short description of the item as well as um, an assessed value, uh, which by my thinking is always a little low, but then again, I'm not a professional appraiser. Anyway, formal gift exchange is an important part of political ritual culture, and the five elephants we'll be talking about today were all exchanged between heads of state as outward signs of goodwill. Our first elephant was given to the Frankish king and first Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne by the Caliph of Baghdad. We only know about this elephant from one source, the Annales Regni Francorum, or Annals of the Frankish Kingdom. The chronicle tells how Charlemagne had sent three men, Lantfried, Sigismund, and a Jew named Isaac, on an embassy to the court of the king of the Persians. Only Isaac returned from this voyage in the year 802, saying that his fellow ambassadors had died during the journey. On his return, he brought numerous gifts from the east, including an elephant named Abul Abbas. Isaac managed to send word to Charlemagne that he was coming, and Charlemagne in turn sent men to help transport the elephant and other gifts back to his court at Aachen, a town that sits today on the border between Germany, the Netherlands, and Belgium. Isaac made landfall in October at Porto Venere, which is halfway between Genoa and Pisa on the Italian coastline, and after spending the winter in Italy, made his way north with Abu Labas, arriving at Aachen on the 20th of July. What happened to Abu Labas after he got to Aachen, we don't really know. The chronicle is silent. The next time he appears is seven years later, in 810. Charlemagne is on campaign against the Danes in the north, and in the middle of the narrative of his conquest in the annals, there's suddenly this random note that says, oh, and by the way, the elephant died. This has led some historians to speculate that Abu Abbas had accompanied Charlemagne on campaign and was perhaps being even used as a war elephant, though there aren't any other clues in the text that might confirm this. After Abu Abbas, we really don't have much record of another elephant in Europe until the 13th century, when two elephants appear. The first belonged to the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. As Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick controlled a large portion of Italy, and it was at his Italian courts that he established a royal menagerie. Perhaps part of the motivation in founding this menagerie was the fact that, in 1229, he was given an elephant by the Sultan of Egypt. In addition to the elephant, his menagerie consisted of a white bear, uh, possibly a polar bear, giraffes, cheetahs, falcons, uh, bearded owls, camels, hyenas, and lions, among other animals. Frederick actually seems to have been fascinated by these exotic animals, to the point that he traveled with part of the menagerie, including the elephant, which, according to the Franciscan chronicler Selimbine de Adam, formed part of the formal procession during Frederick's entrance into the city of Cremona in 1236. According to Selimbine, the elephant carried a fort or small tower on its back, so again the image of the elephant and castle. And in 1245, Frederick showed up at a monastery in Verona with a herd of camels and his elephant in tow. So he liked to travel with his animals, even so far as using camels as pack animals as he moved back and forth across the Alps. It seems like this elephant, though, was fairly stationary, and stayed at Cremona, where it was trotted out for royal entrances and state occasions, including the entrance of Frederick's brother-in-law, the Earl of Cornwall's entrance into the city in 1241. The elephant actually outlived Frederick, who died in 1250, and upon its death, the people of Cremona gave it a formal burial. The Cremona elephant was also mentioned by the English monk and chronicler Matthew Paris, 
whose Chronica Majora catalogs the existence of not one, but two elephants, bringing us to the third elephant on our list. This elephant was an African elephant that was given as a gift to Henry III, King of England, by the King of France, Louis IX, in 1255. When the elephant arrived, he joined Henry III's ever-growing menagerie of pets, uh, several of which were gifts from other rulers. In 1235, for example, Frederick II, who we just talked about, sent three lions, or leopards, we're not sure which, to Henry from his own collection. He had, in fact, just married Henry's sister Isabella a few months before, and had brought some camels, monkeys, and elephants to the wedding as part of his personal roving menagerie. And so the lions and leopards may have been part of this marital gift exchange. Henry had also received a white bear, again what many scholars think was probably a polar bear, from the King of Norway in 1252. The bear was hugely popular in London because he was put on a leash and allowed to swim and fish in the Thames River, and the people of London would come out and, well, watch a polar bear fishing in the Thames River. It's not something you see every day. By the time the elephant arrived, though, the royal menagerie had been relocated to the Tower of London, which at this point was not a prison, but a royal residence. And in the tower, Henry had a special elephant house erected for his newest prize acquisition. The elephant was, like the polar bear, a huge hit in London, and people flocked to see it, including, as I've said, the chronicler Matthew Paris. One interesting result of this is that one of his texts, the Book of Editions, is accompanied by one of the most accurate drawings of an elephant in all of the Middle Ages. Because it was so rare to see an elephant, medieval artists had to rely on either text descriptions of elephants, which could sometimes be very wrong, as in the case of the myth that elephants had no knees, or they relied on previous drawings of elephants, which can lead to the drawing equivalent of the game of telephone. I'm going to put up a link on our website to a collection of images of elephants in medieval manuscripts and bestiaries, so you can see this for yourself. But the result is that uh, some medieval depictions of elephants tend to look like sort of very generic beasts, like cows or horses or even large dogs with big ears and a vacuum cleaner hose for a nose. The Matthew Paris manuscripts, however, are rather obviously done by someone who has seen an elephant in person. Unlike Frederick II's elephant or Charlemagne's, according to Matthew Paris, this elephant did not last very long. It seems like his caretakers at the Tower Menagerie were not completely apprised of how to appropriately care for the animal, because Paris says that they were under the misapprehension that elephants were carnivores, and so it was fed red meat. This was obviously not terribly good for the elephant, and it sadly died in about 1257-1258. For our fourth elephant, we have to move forward to the 15th century, to the court of René of Anjou, Count of Anjou in Provence, Duke of Lorraine, and titular king of Sicily and Jerusalem. Now, if you listen to my podcast on Joanna of Naples, you'll recall that after Joanna dies, control of the county of Provence devolves to her distant cousin, Louis of Anjou, and the Valois-Angevin dynasty. René is a member of that dynasty, and he is the one that will oversee its eventual demise. Known as Le Bon Roi René, the good King René, he effectively loses the kingdom of Sicily to Alfonso V of Aragon in 1442-43, but he will still claim the kingdom in name for the rest of his life, which is a very long time. He doesn't die until 1480 at the age of 71. He spends the rest of his life on his estates in Anjou, which is in the west of France, and then eventually Provence, which is in the southeast. 
As rulers go, he isn't what you would call terribly strong. His portraits aren't terribly flattering either. And while his once expansive empire crumbles around him, being gobbled up by France and Spain, René devotes himself to literature and the arts, both as a patron as well as an author and artist himself. Like Frederick and Henry before him, René will maintain a vast menagerie at his chateau at Angers, the capital of the county of Anjou. We actually know quite a bit about René's menagerie because we have some of the financial accounts where carpenters and masons were paid for its construction, or keepers were paid to care for the animals. The menagerie at Angers had an aviary, civet cats, foxes, an ostrich enclosure, a pond for water birds, and a lion house. The lions were a particular highlight of this collection, and like Frederick's elephant, would get trotted out for parties and state occasions. However, the number of specialists in the care and maintenance of lions was rather limited in 15th century France. Can't imagine why. And it seems like his lions were rather prone to getting sick. René called on surgeons and doctors to help them, and desperately searched for someone with lion care knowledge, but, alas, it was in vain, and one by one, his lions, like the Angevin Empire, sort of died off. Eventually, after he retired from Anjou to Provence, he maintained another menagerie at Aix-en-Provence. Here, as of 1477, he is reported to have had, among other animals, uh, sheep and wild goats from Africa, Turkish and Indian chickens, and rock partridges, which are a member of the pheasant family. He also apparently received, as a present from the newly crowned king of Portugal, two dromedary camels, civets, monkeys, marmosets, and, of course, an elephant. That these animals came from Portugal stems from the fact that, by the 1470s, the Portuguese had begun to look south, toward the west coast of Africa, and, dreaming of a vast, rich Portuguese trading empire, had begun exploring, exploiting, and enslaving their way down the coastline of Africa for several decades. The Portuguese were also responsible for our fifth and final elephant. There is actually a sixth elephant, Ercole um, d'Este, the Duca Ferrara, will receive an elephant from some Cypriot merchants in 1497, but I actually haven't been able to track down much information about that elephant. But this last one, the fifth one, is, of all of the elephants I've talked about today, my personal favorite. His name was Anone, or Hanno, and he was given to Pope Leo X in 1514 by the King of Portugal, Manuel I, in honor of Leo's coronation as Pope. Hanno was a particularly unique gift because he was a white Asian elephant, very, very rare. Uh, by this point, the Portuguese had rounded the Cape of Good Hope and had begun an extensive trade with India, which is where Hanno came from. Hanno was, in fact, one of several elephants that were imported into Europe by the Portuguese, and by all accounts, this was not a terribly pleasant voyage for the elephants, who were strapped to the ship's masts in order to make the journey. By the time he arrived in Rome, Hanno was about four years old, and for Leo, it was reportedly love at first sight. The elephant became his favorite pet, which is saying something because Leo's real name was Giovanni de' Medici. He was the son of Lorenzo de' Medici of Florence, and in addition to inheriting his family's predilection for power, Leo also inherited their predilection for pets. Like his father, Leo maintained a substantial menagerie in Rome, but Hanno was his favorite and he even had a special enclosure built for him next to the papal palace so he could visit him when he wanted. In addition to the Pope, Hanno was also a huge hit with the Roman people, and he even accompanied Leo, along with some leopards, in papal processions. 
Sadly, though, Hanno did not last very long. In 1516, just two years after he arrived in Rome, Hanno became very sick. Doctors attempted to treat him with gold-laced medicine, but in the end, Hanno died. The Pope was massively distraught at the death of his favorite pet, and he had him buried in the courtyard of the Vatican Menagerie. The Pope also commissioned a fresco to be painted by the Renaissance artist Raphael, accompanied by a memorial epitaph composed by Leo himself, which read, Under this great hill I lie buried, mighty elephant which the King Manuel, having conquered the Orient, sent his captives to Pope Leo X, at which the Roman people marveled, a beast not seen for a long time, and in my brutish breast they perceived human feelings. Fate envied me my residence in the blessed Latium, and had not the patience to let me serve my master a full three years. But I wish, O gods, that the time which nature would have assigned to me, and destiny stole away, you will add to the life of the great Leo. He lived seven years, he died of angina, he measured twelve palms in height. Giovanni Battista Branconio dell'Aquila, privy chamberlain to the Pope, and provost of the custody of the elephant, has erected this in 1516, the 8th of June, in the fourth year of the pontificate of Leo X, that which nature has stolen away, Raphael of Urbino has, with his art, restored. Oddly enough, the next year, 1517, was to bring even more trouble to Leo in the form of a cantankerous, meddlesome priest named Martin Luther. And who knows, maybe if Hanno hadn't died, the Pope would have been in a much better mood and more favorably deposed towards Luther. Well, maybe not. But we'll never know. After the beginning of the 16th century, elephants were far more common in Europe than they had been in the previous millennium. As I talked about in my Tulip Mania podcast, this is because the age of exploration and trade with the Americas and Asia gave birth to a kind of collecting impulse among the royalty and aristocracies of Europe. Beginning in the 16th century, private menageries began to multiply, and eventually some of these menageries, several of which housed elephants, were made open to the public, becoming precursors to the modern zoo. But for a thousand years, elephants were scarce in Europe, and to see one, much less to own one, was a rare gift indeed. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the regulation of sex in early modern England. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.